0: Reconciliation Rising is funded in part by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and brought to you by Kevin Aberesk, Margaret Jacobs, Gabby Mace, and Daylin Zagurski. Due to federal Indian policies, the small Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska lost nearly all of its land, and many of its 4,000 tribal citizens moved far away from their homelands in the late 20th century. Lance Foster returned home in 2013 and eventually became his nation's Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and Vice Chair. He was instrumental in working with the Nature Conservancy to hand back a total of 444 acres to the tribe in 2018 and 2020. Now he's turning it into the second national park designed and run by a tribal nation.
1: Thank you so much for meeting with us lance uh, we appreciate it and i uh, want to thank you for you thank you for your time i know that's valuable well
2: thanks for letting me be part of the conversation
1: well we wanted to talk to you today just about uh, the what's going on with your tribe the iowa tribe and uh, the land exchange that occurred between the tribe and the nature conservancy and uh, kind of where that's headed, you know, what what your hopes are with that uh, land exchange and the land that you've uh, been donated by the land, Nature Conservancy. Uh, But first, I guess we just wanted to kind of get to know you and and who you are and uh, where you grew up and all of that, if you wouldn't mind just kind of starting there. Sure.
2: Well, our reservation, as you know, is pretty small, 12,000 acres, and we have something over 4,000 members scattered across the country. Um, only about one-third of the reservation is owned by the tribe, tribal members. As I understand, part of that was because of the allotment process, and so much was lost in the 1880s, 1890s, after, until the Burke Act in 1906, uh, which really accelerated that as well. So I think that there's only was about eight or nine um, allotments still in the tribe's name, in tribal members' name there at one point. And um, so during 1936, part of the uh, Indian Reorganization Act, they had some projects. Like we're sitting in stone building, which was one of those projects to make work um, that the tribal members learned to be masons and quarry and everything. And uh, also shelter belts were a big thing. But another thing is a thing called the Iowa Project of 1936, and what it did was, because so much land had been lost and Iowa tribal members couldn't compete with non-tribal folks for the rents to be able to do farming, they bought uh, about six uh, former allotments that were in the names of banks and things like that, and they called it the Iowa Project. And as part of that, those former allotments became what they called assignments, which Um, They would assign the different tribal members to learn to farm and eventually maybe to save up enough to buy your own farm, and it would be like a small business incubator. It would be another start for the next tribal person. But like most things in life, once people have something, they don't like to let go of it, and and all the politics of tribal country, you know how that works, families and this and that. So um, those assignments have been... One part of what we have, um, trust lands that either we bought with casino money, we don't have um, any kind of per capita. What we do is we use the money for uh, the roads and to develop the reservation as it is and farm um, needs, stuff like that. So. That has avoided, on the one hand, we're pretty rural and we're pretty small, so we're not a multi-million dollar casino out in the middle of, you know, the interstate. So we can't compete that way. But we're a little tucked away, kind of its own little world unto itself. Um, So as part of that kind of losing all those lands, allotments and everything, a lot of people had to leave here to find jobs. And that was accelerated in World War II when people started... uh, Finding what the big world out was was out there, Kansas City, Omaha, local areas, people would go there to get jobs. My own family moved out during the Depression out to California, and my grandpa got work out there in shipyards, um, and uh, my grandmother liked it out there, you know, I mean, it's very typical for uh, a farm girl to go out to the big city and like, uh, you know, the excitement and, and things that are going on out there, so... My father was born here, but they moved out there when he was a baby. And then um, my mom and dad met there, and then I was born there, and we moved up to Montana when I was five. So I was really raised in Montana. among like, the Northern Cheyenne and Blackfeet and Landless Chippewa Cree and those kind of folks. So I, I kind of knew that world. But my grandma would teach me a little bit of Iowa here and there, um, different words and stuff. And I always wanted to come back. So in my 20s, it was the last trip my grandpa and grandma came back. I drove them in my 20s back here in the 1980s. And we got to see the land. At that time, the land was different. They hadn't drained the bottom lands. Um, the roads were all mud still, um, dust, dirt. And so it was It was a different world. And there was also cattails and marshes and stuff still. Um, But since the 1980s, until I came back here to live permanently in 2013, i had come back several times in the 1990s to do my archaeology and my um, graduate studies and visit and go to powwow and stuff. But I only moved here permanently in 2013 again, and uh, a lot had changed. There weren't any bottomlands anymore. The river road was not shady and cool anymore, everything had been changed, and every change brings good and bad a good thing is that you didn't get stuck in your on the roads anymore in the mud and the bad things is the temperature rose higher and higher and it got sunny and sunnier with all the trees cut down mm-hmm. down there so you know our tribe we used to be big potters and traders pre-contact and when the non-indians came in with their guns we kind of forgot how to make bows and arrows or did decided we wanted to go the other way instead and the fur trade changed everything, and of course, we were big potters at one point, just like the Southwest. People think about pots in the Southwest, but the Midwest has a lot of pottery ceramics and stuff. But, you know, they break when you get horses and you go on horseback to go hunt buffalo, and those metal pots available for trade do a lot more, and they last those trips. So we ended up kind of changing over and and not making pottery anymore. So. You gain a better pot in that sense, but you lose the ability to make pottery uh, as a tribe. Their individuals still do little things here and there.
1: Can I pause you just for a sure. moment? Sure. Um, and what were you talking about? The pottery, I think.
2: Oh, I think you were asking kind of a little bit how we got here, how our reservation came to be, that kind of thing. So I'll tell you a little bit about our Aboriginal homelands and how our reservation came to be here. So. Uh, The land that we call Iowa, the land between two rivers, Missouri and the Mississippi, we, uh, in 1837, one of our chiefs, my direct ancestor, Nohart, had a map drawn, or he drew it. We don't know, but they call it the Nohart map. And he said this land has uh, had our names in it from time immemorial. All the rivers we named them, all the places we named them, Um, other tribes when they came in, they just did their... Translation of ours, and the non-Indians did the same. Um, but this was all our all our land. they said, "Look at the mouth of this river. There were our graves here." So the way we define land as ours is not only just ancestral um, connection, but that our graves and things were there. Um. So we prehistorically or pre-contact, we were traders in buffalo skins and pipestone and. Copper, and that was kind of our role in intertribal trade. Um, We uh, ranged all the way from the Minnesota River up in Minnesota, down to the Missouri as it crosses um, across Missouri, the state of Missouri, and over into Illinois and into the middle part of Nebraska hunting buffalo. So we have lived in these areas for since at least 900 or 1,000 AD, at least identifiable as us. Um, Of course, tribes meld and they form and they split and they do all these things over time. And um, so there are different ways of knowing things. You know, there's the tradition that talks about how we um, all the different clans came together at a place called Red Bank, which is basically uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, but But the clans had come from various places and joined there. And we have stories of mound building. We have stories, all those things. So, um, but our glory days are really just before non-Indians hit this area. probably about 1100 to 1600 was about our height of population. And we have begun declining, especially in the 1700s and after till we were only about 150 people at a certain point. So we don't have a lot of folks, um, in that sense. Um,
0: were you agriculturalists as well as we were, traders and hunters? We were kind
2: of like, uh, our way of life was very much like the sack and fox. Mm-hmm. So, you know, or um, the Pawnee or, you know, we were travelers. We were horticulturalists, um, but we would go back and forth two or three times across for the buffalo hunts and be gone to the, from the village and be in the wintertime go up and do mapling and, mm-hmm. and fur trapping and stuff like that. So we kind of did both. hmm And these are your ancestral homelands, this area? Yeah, this, in fact, um, the Leary site, which is only a couple miles from here, it's a National Historic Landmark, and it um, was occupied most intensively from about 1200 to 1400. And uh, the type of pottery and stuff is associated with our ancestors, the Oneota, especially the ore aspect. But um, uh, this river, when Lewis and Clark came up, The Nemaha River, north of that was the oto Missouri, and south of that was the Kaw. So during the time of first contact, you know, after 1400 or so, that's when the Kaw, and probably it was after the collapse of Cahokia, when most of the people who were the Eehaw people, Osage, Omaha, and Ponkin, and Kaw, and and Quapaw, kind of moved away from Cahokia, and during that change in the 1400s, and spread across the country uh, to find kind of their own niches right Mm -hmm. so yeah so it is it is ancestral but when you look at time it's so deep that it's hard to say was it uh, 11,000 years ago because mythic time the time that we think about in terms of ideas and it's not the same necessarily as um, chronological in the in the sense of like uh uh, 1852 and uh, stuff like that. It becomes a mythic time the further back you go. And in our stories, we were, hum- we were animals who so slowly became human beings in our stories. So we're not created human.
0: You mentioned you did a, a graduate degree. Um, was that in archaeology, you said?
2: It was um, anthropology, mm-hmm. but because I'd worked the most in archaeology, I did my thesis on sacred bundles. Mm. So it was about material culture, Mm. about how language goes into that, how do you do taxonomy based upon, Mm. how do you classify, you know, different kinds of bundles, scalping bundles, war bundles, doctoring bundles, and tattooing bundles and all these things. So it was um, an exercise, kind of a uh, uh, cross-discipline kind of a thing. Mm.
1: Well, um, maybe we could talk about... uh, kind of how this land exchange came about
2: with sure. the Nature Conservancy? Sure. Oh, I should probably give you that background. on, oh, yeah. um, on uh, So from the years 1650 to about 1820, um, all the different tribes were moving across the country. It was almost like a domino effect where people would bump into each other and the bigger tribe would take over and the smaller tribe would melt before them and go to another place and eventually you find the niche that you can fit in that you can you can um, hold on to so our tribe uh, was up in pipestone until about 1720 and a place called good earth which is where we got the pipe dance and that's uh, good earth state park in uh, south dakota and then we moved down along the missouri river and across into Um, Southwestern, Iowa, where a lot of the river names, Nishnabotna, Nodaway, all those are kind of based upon our names. And then uh, starting after the War of 1812, 1815, that was our first treaties with the United States. And then one after the other, 1824, all the way down, um, we started ceding more and more land until 1836 when we ceded the last chunk of Missouri that we had and they moved us across the river here to be sandwiched between the Great Neemahaw Halfbeet Tract and to the north and to the south, the Kickapoo Res- Reservation. And Iowa, the Sacro Fox shared a reservation at first for about a year, and then they came in, surveyed it, and split it from 1837
0: on. Mm-hmm.
2: And then we lost land in 1854 and 1861. And so the reservation we have now is at the after 1861 version. Mm-hmm was there ever an attempt to remove the tribe you know to Oklahoma yes there was um, right after the Civil War and actually it was going on before that as soon as uh, 1854 and you had the white squatters coming across trying to take reservation lands by hook or crook and um, finding especially 1857 on when it was really being settled here there was always a hue and cry to get those Indians off of uh, this good land you know that was meant for farming although we farmed too but they wanted the land. And so it's always been, like, nibbled away like an ice cream cone, right? Bite, bite, bite. Um, so um, there was always the pressure. Um, people were were killed. There was a lot of the same kind of things that were going on with other tribes about uh, decimation and murder and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. We were getting whittled away pretty badly. Um, the big change probably happened in the Civil War of 1861 to 1865 because... Almost all the adult men went away and served on the side of the North. And like most wars, when men come home from war, their minds have been changed for various reasons, and they saw that this was not going to stop, that they were going to continue to want our land. And so there began a huge discussion in the tribe about whether, like almost all the other tribes in Kansas who were getting pushed down to Indian Territory, which became Oklahoma, um, there was a discussion. Discussion here and there are only four of those tribes left that were here. There was 20 something tribes I think here at one point and only the Iowa, the Sac and Fox, Kickapoo and Potawatomi uh, remain. Um, for us the split in the tribe happens in the 1870s. The conversation continued um, the people up north that we are um, decided we wanted to stay with the allotment and our attachment was more to the farm and to our burial grounds uh, and things like that. Um, The people who moved south, they wanted to live the old way, which was village centered. Um, You know, the old ways, the hunting, the language, there was hardly any game up here left anymore. So there was a split and about two thirds stayed up here, one third moved down there. And within 10 years after the Oklahoma land rush, they were allotted as well. And they couldn't live in that common way Mm -hmm. either. Um, So that's kind of what happened. Mm The tribe was able to maintain a certain
1: land base, though, throughout the years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, probably, it was almost the tribe itself didn't have any land as the tribe until the Iowa project. And the land we're on right now was part of that, one of the the green allotment that was purchased to put into um, U.S. trust. Um, and the tribe didn't have any land as a tribe until that time period.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting.
2: Within our own reservation. Mm -hmm.
1: Has the tribe made efforts um, to regain some of the land over the years?
2: Yeah, I would say that the casino, the main purpose of the casino has been to get money to buy back land as we could. Of course, you know, non-Indians often think Indian casinos means that you're rich, which we're not. Um, so they always jack up the price even beyond fair market value. Mm. So it's been hard to buy back our land because they always want more than what it's worth, and we can't we can't always pay that. Yeah. So, that's that's been the way we've been getting it back, just bit by bit.
0: So what? Uh, how did you meet up or learn about or start working with the Nature Conservancy and?
2: so the nature conservancy was gifted a chunk of land by ray schulenberg in the 18, 1980s um the Rulo bluffs preserve he called it um because ruleau was probably the closest town to where it's at although we tend to think of ruleau more like nebraska and white cloud is kansas but um anyway he had been a person from a young guy from fall city he kind of wanted to live like thoreau out on the land and uh he bought a place over here on the reservation one of the um, little hollows and uh one of the tribal members kind of helped him find it and he lived there for a few years and then he just even he discovered even Thoreau would have had to have money and so he did the best he could, and you come back often. He became kind of one of the fathers of prairie restoration, I know, and um, and just that legacy of trying to do that is part of what of Bluffs is about. And then later on, they bought another piece of um, property that they added onto that to try to do some prairie restoration.
0: The Nature Conservancy, yeah, bought the Nature that?
2: The okay. Conservancy bought that. And then how we got involved was because they had. Um, Regimes to manage it by fire, you know, to replenish the grasses and chase back the woody growth and things like that. So um, we've always kind of been partners with them. A lot of tribal members help them do the burns and everything. So I think what they discovered was it was just the management was getting too far. Um, There was just, uh, it would be easier. And they had a good relationship with the tribe, and they just started exploring that. Mm-hmm. When did this all start, this conversation? Uh, my predecessor, Alan Kelly, who was the vice chair, was probably the most active, um, moving that forward. And I would say that it probably wasn't until twenty thirteen, fourteen, somewhere in there, that it was serious. Who knows? I don't know if people were mumbling about it before, but mm-hmm. that's kind of when it got serious. All right. So how did that come up, or how did how did that play out? I guess how it played out. Now, the tribe um, needs to put things into trust um, in order, you know, so we don't have to pay taxes on those things on our own reservation, and so we have to always kind of look and see how is that going to fit in. Is it going to be income-producing property, and that is less worrisome that we have to. But if it's a place that doesn't produce any money. Then, and, and they're going to be taxing you on it. We just, you know, like anybody else, we're like, why should we have to pay taxes on our own reservation lands? Um, so in 2016, the first tract of property called the Bachman property, uh, which was the part that they bought later on um, for cattle, used to cattle graze and try to do some uh, prairie restoration and things like that, that, they did that first transfer. And part of the reason was because it was not the original property, which was Schulenberg's property, which had a lot of more strict conservation easement requirements, things like no hunting, no motorized vehicles, things like that. And if you know the countryside, people like the ATVs. So um, the first track had less restrictions, and so we could move forward with that. You know, um, We could still manage. We could still do other things the Nature Conservancy wanted us to do. But... Um, not only is the BIA reluctant to take on property that other people tell them what to do, what can or cannot be done, because the BIA's interest generally is to make money off of property for tribes. Um, the tribe itself, I mean, we're a tribe of people that like to go hunting, like to go four wheeling, like to do all the country stuff that people like to do. And so there was just a hesitation to take on something that would be more hassle. That's why they moved forward with the one tract in 2016, and and the other one just kind of well, stepped back from it for a while. How big was that first tract? Uh, let's see, it was 247. I think is how many acres the root, the Schulenberg tract is. I think I'd have to look because I don't know off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> the total is 444. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to. Get back to you on that. I can't remember. Okay,
0: I saw something in an article that said 160 acres.
2: That could be. It looked like okay. it was about four sections, Okay. or four quarter sections. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there was that. So after that one, we still a couple of us. Like I'm, I'm a, much more of a conservationist kind of person. Um, I worked for the fort, for the Park Service briefly as a cultural landscape um landscape historian and i've always been you know into the woods you know so i kept wanting to happen um 2019 my predecessor alan kelly decided not to run for re-election and i saw my priority being conservation and culture I thought, you know, self-defense, I have to run because you never know who gets in there and they may have no interest in our language and our culture and our land and stuff and that. Maybe totally all about economic development or business and stuff. And then the land generally, you know, is at risk for that sort of thing. So I ran, um, I won with a real close margin, um, but I did win. That was 2019 fall. And they told me all you have to do is go meet in the afternoons on Wednesday. And then the pandemic hit. And life changed entirely. And we were meeting every day. I was the FEMA guy, too, for a while, oh. doing all the PPE stuff and yeah. all that. So, yeah, so the fact, uh, trial by fire, really. Um, <laughs> but it did give us some opportunities. When there's great challenges and great um, events that gives you a chance to maybe do things a little bit differently and our casino was closed for three or four months and uh, the issue that nature Conservancy had brought it up again um, in 2019 and so we took it on in 2019 is when the in November I think it was we did the official transfer um, and we moved it forward but that was just in the first kind of just before the pandemic hit. And when the we didn't know what we were going to do with it, we didn't know what we were going to do with it because the tribe is like, well, can we go in there? What can we do? Can we gather wood? Can and all those things had conservation easement things that we were restricted from a lot of those those activities. So it was kind of like um, just uh, in limbo somewhat um, about what we were going to be able to do. So I'd always thought about national parks and I thought you know we're a sovereign nation in fact our treaties talk about the Iowa nation as well as the Iowa tribe of Indians and I thought how can we do this because I had in 2013 when I took on this job as TIPO I'd spent six weeks of that first year standing out there defending where they were going to build a bridge against some parts of the site that were going to get affected some large cottonwoods some other things and every day I had to stand out there because if you didn't, you know, they might take down something you didn't want them to. And then it was faced again on the Leary site, a National Historic Landmark, that they wanted to re-terrace some of the hill, the burial hill, um, for cattle damage and stuff that they, that they had. And I said, no, you can repair some of the damage, but you don't re-terrace it. So I had to fight people on that. So I, you know everything's fight, fight, fight all the time.
0: So what's that unusual then? The relationship with the Nature Conservancy. It doesn't sound like that was fight, fight, fight. It sounds like maybe there's well, more cooperation. There
2: was, and the Nature Conservancy is conservation-minded, and so my so there's a natural connection there. Um, I come from a from a state where ranchers and farmers and everything run everything. Montana, and Montana, yeah. and it is going through a bunch of stuff now, and I know because I'm the first one to graduate from high school, in my family and everything. Well, my mom did, but the first one to kind of go through all this, so I understand a working landscape. I, I get that, but I also know I've seen it nibbled away from the 1980s, and it's not what it was even back then. And I thought we gotta have to, we have to use our minds in some other way to come up with something. And I thought, you know what? We've got the National Historic Landmark, we're on the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. Now we have this conservation biologically unique landscape. We have all these resources and it could be a way to protect it as well as not only protect it and bring people here sometimes to visit and learn about us, but to connect us to the land in a different way because our language, our culture, We have a powwow every year, third weekend of September, but we don't have schools that we could teach our language through. People are scattered to the different counties. Um, It's really a lot of our identity has been eroded. In order to survive in this non-Indian kind of um, farming culture, I've seen it generation by generation, go more and more from culturation to assimilation. And I would say, this is our last chance. So I'm going to also try to push together a language resolution because there's no first language native speak- speakers anymore left. It's wow. like a Wampanoag. It's like sleeping language, you know. Mm. And I, I'm one of the few that speak much of it at all, but I'm not a first language speaker. There aren't any. Mm. Um, so, yeah, conserve the land. But it can't be frozen in time people have to find a new way to live with it and conserve it and what some young ladies in six nations on facebook said two-eye seeing which is the best of traditional ecological knowledge indigenous ways of knowing but also the best of western science so maybe some of the management and microscope work and the soil health and all that kind of stuff along with traditions about how you treat animals and the plants and the gathering um you know, rules that if you see only four plants, just take one, you know, and that's only if you need it. Because our own people sometimes don't even hold to those old ways of conservation anymore. People just say, yeah, that that guy over there is going to take everything. I think I better take it before he does. And we got to change that or we're all doomed. Great. Um, what sort of um, hopes do you have for the land that was uh, that was donated? At first, my hopes was just, to have it last for another hundred years or so, to give people a chance to have some area that they can go in the woods and get lost and and just be around the trees and learn some plants and things. But I know that's not going to work if you try to separate the people from that. You're not. You can't just hold it in this a capsule. It's not big enough here. It's not like Wyoming or something. People have to learn a new way of living with the land, so that a thousand years from now. Cause that's the difference between us and anybody else um who's not indian you know if things don't go right in your place if you go broke you can move you can sell out we can't we're going to be here until whatever happens happens at the very end so it's different that way
0: so i i read recently that you are forming a, a tribal national park which you already mentioned mm-hmm. it's the, it will be the largest in the nation, in the U.S. nation. Um,
2: and, and yeah, tell the, us more about that. What? Okay, so when I was looking for a way to conserve and preserve Leary Tribal, um, the Leary National Historic Landmark, which is uh, one of our ancestor villages from about twelve hundred to fourteen hundred, mm-hmm. and how to preserve the land that the Nature Conservancy had given to us. There's another little chunk of land which is. Um, my family's allotment that the tribe owned um, and could be a hub for trails. And it has Mm -hmm. the 1854 monument on it where they surveyed Kansas and Nebraska. And then we're also in the middle of gaining our historic mission back, which Mm -hmm. is down by Highland. Mm -hmm. So I thought, how do you put all these pieces together? And Iowa Tribal National Park seemed to be the way to make it make sense, right? The people... Click with that. They know what national parks are, but we're not under the National Park Service. We handle things ourselves. We we have our own sovereignty. That means we we don't have taxes. We don't have that. To, so we're gonna have to figure out the money part, mm. you know, and see how that works. Um, but that's how it kind of came to be. Uh, is is to do that now? As far as the term, I looked up. I thought, are there other ones that did national parks? And I I know the Navajo. I know the Ute. I know the, uh, folk, there's several folks up in um, Canada and Alaska. They have their preserves. And then I saw that um, it was Red Cliff, uh, Frog Bay, mm-hmm. Tribal National Park was the first one. And um, I thought, okay, so there's precedent. I can use that. It's not something that like, oh, you're only one and they're gonna fight you on it. It exists, I could show that That's a model. And um, The other thing is that um, it was, gosh, I think the Tribal National Park at that time was like 80-something acres or whatever, and ours already would be over 400 acres, so that's why. And it's like everything else, to get people's imagination so they agree with it, is to say Iowa Tribal National Park, and it's the second Tribal National Park by that name I was specified and it is the largest by acreage doesn't mean it always will be it doesn't mean it's bigger than than the mountain mountains that the utes and stuff have but by that name in our part of the country we don't kansas is like not over 98 percent um privately owned we don't have a lot of um public lands at all and people have been what they call pushing trees and and getting rid of the forest left and right because the land is so valuable. And it's urbanizing around Kansas City. So we can't do the big thing, but we can do the small thing. As far as my idea, I worked in Hawaii for a number of years in the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And volcanoes, when they they, uh, erupt, the lava flows over the landscape and everything that's a little bit higher, it's like water, right? Those are almost like islands. The Hawaiians call those kipuka, um, which means holes. And what they are is once the lava hardens, those places that still preserve forests and things like that become the seed banks. So the idea of landscape ecology, the idea of rewilding, all these things. So what I also see as is a refugia, just like uh, during the ice age, or only it's not ice and it's not lava, it's population that swamped every area. So. The thing I'm trying to find out now is how can we take these little small areas that we have, very small areas, but have a multiplier effect, connecting them to other areas so that there's the species can not be isolated. They can not be isolated. They can just keep on reproducing up and down and finding new mates and gene exchange and all that good stuff.
0: How far are you along in the process of creating the national park you have the designation we have have the the land
2: this year we've been um, studying the trails Mm -hmm. Uh, we've had several people um, test some of them and do some gps work on it things like that Um, i hope to have maybe a couple signs up this year 2025 is the ultimate goal for it to be have the official opening and which is also the anniversary of the Treaty of Prairie du Chien of 1825, which kind of was the first carving up of tribal territories in the Midwest. Mm. So um, it's kind of significant to us, 2025. Every year we hope to have new things happen. We're also doing trying to, trying to do an agritourism thing here as part of regenerative ag that we're doing. Um, greenhouse in the snow, that kind of stuff, as well as the hemp that we're, that we're growing as well. And uh, so 2025 is kind of the goal. And it's already 2021, so yikes. Coming up, yeah. Great.
0: I would love to know more about the agritourism. What, what does that involve?
2: Well, you know, we're... Some people talk about dreams, about having big factories to employ people and things like that. But in the middle of winter time, a lot of the roads are closed because of ice storms and things like that. So I always think about instead of trying to bring in something to change the land, what can you do that helps the land be what it is and keeps this quality of life that you want, that you're used to, but just gives more opportunity at the same time. Um, I think that the, uh, the real key is um, ecotourism, heritage tourism and agritourism, which all look at different aspects of the land. We're not going to allow people to come just to go do the usual thing. Um, the Utes, Navos, other other folks, they, um, they have programs either where there's guides or some sort of some uh, companies. We're not going to be anybody's playground. That's not what we're about. If you want to learn about us and our history and our connection to the land, especially for those of us who are a diaspora spread across the country, that a lot of times there's not been something to come back to, to learn about yourself, to learn about your language. So this program, whether it's about the land itself, ecotourism, or whether it's about the regenerative farming that we do, the agritourism, or whether it's about our history, our culture, the heritage tourism, it's all connected. But it's all about maintaining our agency. Uh, and our power to tell our own story. And to control what, so things don't happen here like have happened to other national parks. Um, Like Zion got swamped by people, Yosemite is swamped. And we're nothing like that. We don't have those huge vistas and things like that. This is the only thing we have and we have to take care of it. And I mean, sometimes there's gonna have to be restrictions.
1: Well um, obviously our project is called Reconciliation Rising and um, you know one of the questions we ask everybody we interview is um, do you consider this this land donation this land exchange um, an act of reconciliation? Um, Yeah.
2: I think it was a great act of kindness and justice and reconciliation to make this happen and what's really wonderful is that it isn't just a one and done situation. It is creating a relationship between our tribe and the Nature Conservancy, not only on our own land, but how can we help um, bring that kind of kind of approach to other parts uh, and other places in the mission field of the Nature Conservancy. Uh, like I said earlier, trying to find ways to connect conservation areas you know maybe some of the carbon credit stuff that people do we can find ways to create connectivity between some of these conservation areas and because that without connectivity it's like unless you're a bird how are you going to get there and find new mates right um, so I think it's it's been reconciliation and creating a new different kind of relationship too
0: that's great you mentioned earlier before we were recording you, um, that you'd been at a meeting in Denver and had joined the Bison Trust? What is that, and and is that related to your work of conservation here?
2: Yeah, the ITBC, Intertribal Buffalo Council, Mm -hmm. is uh, an effort. It was part of a Northern Plains Treaty to bring the buffalo back and to help tribes do that in particular. Um, I've... A number of tribes from Montana and the Northern Plains signed it first and there have been people added every year. Not just in the Classical Plains area, but there are places uh, in Alaska and the north, Northeast and stuff that that have Buffalo council members. So we were inducted this this time, on my birthday actually, June 2nd, so that was pretty cool to have it as a birthday present. Um, I'm the alternate, uh, Elise Towie, who is our treasurer is the main member and she's buffalo clan and that's why Mm -hmm. because it's property that um, that way Uh, so yeah that's what we do and hopefully the buffalo um, i would like to see it being part of that prairie restoration effort Mm -hmm. you know it costs a lot fencing costs a lot Um, everything costs a lot right but we're also working with our southern iowa brothers and sisters to create uh, eagle uh, sanctuary up here too, mm-hmm. the eagles come and they visit in the winter time especially because the Less Bluffs uh, Wildlife Refuge is across the river there, and they hunt a lot of the waterfowl, um, so we get a lot of bald eagles in the winter time. Um, but the Southern Iowa's have a thing called the Gray Snow Eagle House, mm-hmm. and they take injured eagles and other raptors, and um, release the ones they can and take care of the ones they can't so we're trying to work with them to develop a sanctuary over here so you know so that the land is healed as part of it's part of the animals as part of the land too they're not separated and I also have kind of a desire to have a, a wildlife rehabilitation clinic here too for things that have gotten hidden by cars or whatever uh, we have started to see some animals come back um, there have been sightings of things like like otters and cougars and things like that. Um, so we're just really happy. Um, every once in a while, I, I hope that we can restore the, the wetlands too down by the river, but those places have all been drained as super attractive to agriculture, so bit by bit, right? Well, is there anything you want to mention or talk
1: about that we haven't asked about?
2: I can't think anything, but uh, but yeah. If, if unless we come up with something, I mean, we can talk about anything. You can record and use whatever you want to do. But mm-hmm. I don't have anything like formal. I want to say mm-hmm. I think language. Um, I would say that part of what we're doing here is tek traditional ecological knowledge and bringing that back to us, bringing our language back to us. And this Friday, we're going to have a meeting of people who are specialists in TEK and park planning and recreation and uh, have, hear what they have to say about how can we move this thing forward You know, what are the steps mm-hmm.
0: it's really exciting to hear what you're doing
2: it really is, yeah definitely
0: I wish I would, you know, had a lot of money and could just give you a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> how can my people help sitting if, over there if, like, Don't if people give help her any with ideas <laughs> well
2: if people want to help and if they want to send donations they can certainly send to the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and put it specifically that's for the Iowa Tribal National Park project. Great, great. Um, but anyway, we're also interested in people who have specialty areas in, like, knowing about herpetology, or you know, we're looking for ways to learn how people they have an experience with the forest bathing, you know, mm-hmm. where you walk through and the different ways to i also have a we have a group on facebook iowa tribal national park you can check out um and there's other things they're kind of branching off to that too but um i think that's probably enough for now i can't think of anything other great wow great
1: well should we wrap it up
0: yeah all right thank um, you so much lance thank you so
1: much for your time <laughs> sure. lance we really appreciate it and uh we look forward to all the things you're doing here and kind of seeing these things uh, come to fruition and hopefully we can return some time and talk about what you've done.
2: That'd Uh, be really cool. Yeah, appreciate it.
0: Lance Foster, Vice Chair and Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, is creating one of the first national parks on tribal land after the Nature Conservancy returned over 400 acres to his nation. It will be a place for members of the Iowa diaspora to return to their roots and a site where non natives can learn more about the Iowa nation.
1: Thank you for joining us on Reconciliation Rising, a project dedicated to natives and non natives confronting our past and reimagining our future. If you'd like to learn more about our project, please check out our website at www.reconciliationrising.org.